0: Dear Father, Father, we're studying on your your system for rewarding those who follow you, and Father, from our point of view, sitting where we are today, Father, it seems a completely unnecessary thing that you would reward us. For Father, what more could we ask than the grace we've received? And for us, Father, that's that's more than enough, and. And yet, Father, you love us so much that like we do with our children, Father, you desire to give us good gifts. And Father, what, what a revelation it is to know this and to be moved in our hearts to consider whether we are pleasing you for the sake of those things. And Father, help us as we go through your text this morning to understand even better how this, this system, this economy that you've established for us, how that is to help us do the right things. And to be a good witness to you and to the gospel. Help us to be motivated in the right ways, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as my prayer indicated, uh, we're in the middle of a discussion on rewards. I say in the middle of it because as we go through the Bible, we deal with what's on the page. That's the way this works. And what we came upon in the beginning of chapter 20 was a discussion on how the Lord assigns us rewards in the kingdom to come. And with what we learned last week at the outset of this chapter, we discovered that every believer will receive a share of Christ's inheritance. And that's a way of referring to the eternal treasure that he has for us in the kingdom. And for anyone who may be new today, let me just clarify the term kingdom for 10 seconds. We're talking about what we often call heaven, but in real terms, the kingdom is a place. It is this Physical realm of Jesus ruling on this earth again after he comes at his second coming and we're here with him We live here on this earth again in a new body that won't die and all the rest that you may already know And when you think about that you have to realize we have to live somewhere. We have to have a house We have to have some means of of getting by there is a real life to it We're not just sitting on a cloud with a harp You know as hallmark would have you believe by the greeting cards. It's not it's real life and what the Bible is teaching us is that in that time and in that place to come, we will be awarded something, a part of the inheritance that Christ himself received, that is a part of the world. It may be land, it may be homes, farms, other possessions, whatever it is, it will be wealth that we can use and enjoy for the eternity of the kingdom. Every believer, we learned last week, gets a share of that inheritance. No one gets zero. That was the first thing we learned. But we also learned last week that there is a method, there is a means by which we can receive a greater share of what's available, and that will be based on how we serve Christ now in our time and in our talents and even in our treasure as we sacrifice to do the things that promote the kingdom. And when Jesus evaluates our work at the judgment seat of Christ, he will take into account what we did in those realms, yes, but we also learn that he will take into account our opportunities, which gives evidence of the fairness of God in all of this, because he said that he understands we have different starting points in this walk with Christ. Some of us become Christians sooner in our lives than others. Some of us live longer than others. Some of us receive greater spiritual gifts than others. Some of us have more earthly resources than others. And some of us have higher callings in the body of Christ than others. And your reward, my reward, will be based on how we use the opportunities we were given. And that's where the meaning of the phrase to whom much is given, much is required comes from. If your life is incredibly blessed in these various ways, spiritually and materially, then the Lord has put in your hands the potential to make a greater impact for the kingdom and he's waiting to see what you do with that. And those who use the opportunity well will receive more of the rewards that are available in the kingdom materially. Now, you know, at some point, people start to think, doesn't this sound wrong? I mean, you know, it seems very uh, transactional. Well, we didn't make up this system, Jesus did. Number one. Number two, it's no different than what we do in our own lives with our children, with our employees. That is, we set in front of them the potential for reward because we know it will encourage the right behaviors. And Jesus knows that a little encouragement is a good thing for us particularly, right? And so God puts us in life with a certain set of parameters, certain resources, certain opportunities. And Paul refers to that as a race. And he says, run the race that's been set before you. You've been given a race. You've been given a race. I've been given a certain race that is a certain course of life, and it's different. We all have our own world in that respect. Run the race you've been given. Your job is not to compare yourself to someone else, your job is not to beat someone else. It's a race between you and yourself, between serving Christ and serving yourself. And you run the race that's been set before you, and as you do that, you'll be rewarded. Now, if you're like me and you understand this concept, or as you understand this concept, it starts to change your thinking in the right ways, in the way that it's supposed to. You begin to ask yourself questions about whether you've organized your life, your time, your talent, your treasure, the use of those things to optimize your reward. Because the concept is very simple. you know, Whatever you do to earn what you want here and now, you leave it behind. But if you take the time and the effort that you've been given and the resources and you put them to work for the kingdom, well then that follows you into the next world. That result follows you. And Jesus wants to motivate us to do that to live with eyes for eternity. And so he incentivizes us to do whatever's necessary now to make the most of the time that he's given us here on earth. That's the concept of rewards. And last week we started that conversation in the beginning of chapter 20, looking at the material side of that reward system. Now as we go further in the text, we take a bit of a sidebar here at first in verse 17, because Matthew returns to a theme that he's gone through a couple times already, the theme of Jesus's impending death In Jerusalem so let's address that first but even as we do we're not off of the topic of rewards yet because as you see before we leave today we come back to that let's do our sidebar as I call it first verse 17 as Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them behold we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. All right, let's remember where we are as, as we get into this conversation. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus leave Capernaum, which was his home in the Galilee, traveling south, southeast into the region that's today Jordan, across the east side of the Jordan River, into a region called Perea. That's the territory that was one of two territories under the authority of Herod Antipas. And it was in that area that he taught, among other things, on marriage and on serving children, you know, not turning away the children. And then finally on the rewards that we just looked at. And now he's on the move again. He's continuing to go southward. Now he's gonna cross back over the Jordan to the west side and he's gonna go to Jerusalem. This is his final journey to Jerusalem. We are a a few days or weeks probably away from the Passover in which he becomes the Lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. So he knows where he's going and he knows what his end is. And it's for that reason that we've seen him now on several occasions telling these guys, look, this is what's about to happen. I wanna help you understand what's about to happen. And now for the third time, he gives them that insight. And this is by far the most detailed explanation. He says, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be taken into custody by the religious leaders. They're gonna try me, they're gonna convict me. I'm gonna be sentenced to death and I'm gonna be scourged by Gentiles, which of course is the reference to the Romans. And then he says, I'm going to die on a cross, crucifixion, but I'm going to resurrect after three days. Now, he's essentially given them this story twice before, but here he spells it out plainly, in complete detail. I mean, he gives them the full story before it happens. But here's the interesting thing. Just like with the earlier occasions, they don't get it. They don't understand what they're hearing in this moment. The problem was they did not realize that their generation of Israel had already lost the opportunity to receive the kingdom. As you remember from past teaching in this book, there came a point in which Jesus withdrew the offer of the kingdom from this generation of Israel. Not from the people individually, that is, an individual could still come to faith and be saved, that hasn't changed. But this was not going to be the time that the nation of Israel as a whole saw their kingdom, their promised messianic kingdom, come to earth. That was put off. That was taken away from them, and it will return to them in a future generation. They didn't get that yet. They were thinking that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem to set up that kingdom. They're believing it's right around the corner. And all of the recent teaching that he's been doing along this journey concerning the kingdom— Let the children come into the kingdom. The kingdom of God will be like this or like that. The rewards of the kingdom. All that has done is heightened their anticipation. They feel like they're about to walk into the kingdom. So here you see the Lord, their future messianic king, walking toward the seat of power in Israel, to the kingdom seat. And they're expecting that they are just a few weeks away from the kingdom's arrival. And like children who get excited about the idea that school's ending and here comes summer break. They're, they're looking forward to this change and they're anticipating it. And it's on their minds. And by the way, they're not the only ones. When he gets to the point of entering the city through the east gate, who's gonna be there waiting for him? Crowds with palm branches. Hosea, you know, saying the king has arrived. There is a growing anticipation that he's moving this way so that he can finally wrestle control of the country away from the Romans and set up the Jewish kingdom. But here's Jesus walking along this path saying, Guys, that's not what's going to happen here. That's not the plan right now. I'm going to die, not rule. And there's a reason. And he gives them so much detail here so that they will understand that when this happens, it's not plan B, it's plan A. You know, I like to say with God, there's no such thing as plan B, everything that happens is plan A. We don't understand half of it or much of it or any of it, but the point is it doesn't mean that it was against God's will because we don't like it or don't understand it. It just means that we haven't seen the whole thing yet. Just like these men who, when they see Jesus die on the cross, they're going to assume that the plan has failed, that God has somehow been upended, and or at the very least, they must have bet on the wrong horse. They don't know, they're they're confused. That sense will be there as the cross happens. And so we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus is helping them understand it, and yet, and by the way, he's using words that are unambiguous, I mean, crucify, die, resurrect, right? I I get the fact that these guys may not have understood the how or the why, but to understand the what, the thing that has been said, that doesn't seem that hard, does it? It's just easy to follow, but yet, these guys aren't getting it. In fact, they don't even ask any questions about it. In fact, they're so ignorant about this that after the death, and while they're in the upper room or when they're in Jerusalem, they don't get it. No one is sitting around saying, guys, I think we heard about this already. Didn't we hear this already? No, they're devastated. And of course, it'd be easy for us to sit here and say, what idiots, right? Just throw these guys under the, under the bus, so to speak, under the chariot. Just say to them, you know, if I'd been there, I would have figured this out. How dumb do you have to be? But you need to know what God is doing here. If we go to Luke's account of this same moment, this, this moment as Jesus explains himself for the third time, here's what you find in Luke 18:34. But the disciples understood none of these things, as I just said, and, and listen to this, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. All right, now this makes sense on the one hand, but it asks new questions on the other hand, because on the one hand, it makes sense now why they didn't get it. They're not idiots, it was hidden from them. Which, of course, who's hiding it from them? Obviously, the Lord is hiding it from them. He's saying it, but the meaning of it is not being registered in their brain because the Lord is withholding that. He's holding them in their ignorance, if you will, leaving them in the dark. He could have brought them the understanding of it in the moment, but he didn't. All right, now that just begs the second question, though, which is, why would you give something to somebody only to withhold the understanding of it at the time? I mean, in our way of thinking, we would have just said, don't tell them at all. You know, wait till later if that's what you want. So why did God do this? Well, the reason is this, because any understanding of what was about to happen would have been useless to them, and moreover, counterproductive. Here's why. If they had understood what was about to happen, let me ask you this, do you think they would have gone into the city? Do you think they would have accompanied Jesus? No, no. And what would they have done, for example, at the Last Supper when Judas is being dismissed to go betray Jesus? Do you think they might tackle him on the way out? Right? Beat him into submission, tie him on a chair and say, you're not gonna do this, right? The, the point is, any true understanding of what was happening would have gotten them in the way of what God was doing. And yet, he wanted them there. He wanted them in the city. He wanted them to experience it so that later they would be witnesses of it and testify to it. And yet, after it's over, they need to get the big picture. So he's got these competing priorities. They need to go. They need to understand. They need to know it's all part of plan A. And what better way to do that than to tell them in advance what's happening, but withhold the knowledge of it so that they don't get in the way, and then reveal it to them at the end where they can then, from a point of perspective, look back and say, ah, this is all supposed to happen. He told me it was gonna happen. Okay, now I see this is part of plan A. This is not a mistake. This is what he wanted. You see, that's the power of prophecy in many cases. In many cases, God gives people foreknowledge of something without a complete understanding of it at the time, so that later as the events play out, with that perspective, we can see that it was always in God's intent. And yet... We didn't get in the way. We didn't short-circuit it somehow by our knowledge of it. Luke describes the moment when these guys are actually allowed to understand what happened after the fact. This happens at the end of Luke's gospel. Luke twenty four thirty six. You remember in that story, the men who are walking to Emmaus And they encounter Jesus on the way to Emmaus. He reveals himself to them, and they run back to Jerusalem to tell everyone, guess what, he's alive, we've seen him. And when they get to the room where all the disciples are huddled, and they report what they've seen, here's the the moment. While they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst, so he appears to them in Jerusalem, and said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened, and they thought they were seeing a spirit, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubt, why does doubt arise in your hearts? And see my hands and my feet, that it is myself? Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So only after the whole thing had played out does he open their minds to understand the scriptures. As we move past this sidebar and get back into the other discussion, just consider that for a moment. We aren't living in such monumental times as they did, not in the moment of the crucifixion, but at every day in our life, we are in the middle of some story that God is playing out around us and through us. And there will be times in your life when you come to what God has revealed in the scripture and it all makes perfect sense but there'll be a lot of times when you come to it and you don't really get it. You need to understand that at that point, God is putting a seed that he's gonna use later and you have to be content sometimes with not understanding what you've read or what you've been taught or what you hear, but trusting there's a day to come when it will make sense. The challenge is this, don't try to make it make sense in the meantime. Because if you do that, you end up coming up with your own answer to what it means, typically the wrong answer to what it means, or as some might do, you dismiss it altogether, that is, if, for example, you can't accept that God created everything in six days, but you, uh, you see that and you see what the world says about evolution, and you're like, I don't know how to put those two together, and if you're too quick to try to figure it out, you might be quick to make the wrong choice or to blend them in some way that does violence to the scripture. What I'm telling you is if you just hold the thought that he said it, it's true, I don't understand it, but I'm going to go with it, in time, he will show you why it's true. He will explain it to you in ways that if you give him time will make sense. But if you dismiss it out of hand, he'll leave you in your ignorance. And that's just one example, but you see it at work here. So he has set them up to understand something that they won't understand entirely until it's over, but it comes to bear on their hearts later. We'll come back to that as the scripture does, but meanwhile, here's more proof that these guys were in the dark at the time. It's found in what comes next in this scene. Chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, oh, we are able. He said to them, huh? my cup you shall drink but to sit on my right or on my left, that's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. All right, so here's a scene that reinforces for us that they don't understand that the kingdom isn't right around the corner. Now, two of the apostles of the 12, two of the 12 were James and John. Those are the two here that are of the father named Zebedee. Now, just to be clear, this is not the James that is the half-brother of Jesus who who also has the eponymous New Testament letter of James. That is not the James here. This is, ironically or or interestingly, history has recorded this James as James the Lesser. How would you like to have that title? Oh, are you James the half-brother? No, I'm James the Lesser. James, but that's to distinguish him from the other James. Anyway, the John here, of course, is the John we all know, the John of the uh, gospel by the same name, the, the three epistles in Revelation. So this is the apostle John, the apostle James. Their mother is present with them at this time, and from the other gospels, we find out that her name is Salome. And Salome was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and so that would mean that since Salome and Mary were related, in earthly terms, James and John are also cousins of Jesus. And she's there. She bows before Jesus, we're told. She requests that he command that these two sons of her sit on his left and on his right when he comes into the kingdom. Here again, that's an evidence to us that they're thinking the kingdom is right around the corner and everybody's jockeying for positions. Now, in this context, when you say, I want to sit on the left or the right of you, and you're talking in terms of a king coming into his kingdom, th- that's saying, I want the two highest positions in the authority of the government. Because a ruler traditionally would assume a seated position as they hold court and as they rule on the matters And on the other side of them would stand two people a left and the right And these two were the most trusted advisors for this individual They would stand very close on either side of the ruler so that when the ruler had a question They could kind of turn in and he could whisper something to them and he could get their feedback in the moment So here's what this woman just asked Jesus. She said would you promote my two sons, to the absolute highest positions, number one and number two, in your government. Now, at this point, it'd be kind of easy to criticize Salome, right? She's, she's trying to advance the religious careers of her sons, and it's kind of a stereotype, in fact. Jewish mothers are sometimes stereotyped this way. They, they push their sons into accomplishing great things. There's you know little jokes and stories about uh, Jewish mothers doing this. One of like a Jewish mother pushing two baby sons, twins, in a carriage, and in. Central Park, and she comes upon another friend who's Jewish, and she says, oh, you're two boys, what are their names? And the mother says, this is uh, Solomon the doctor and Eli the lawyer, and it's this, it, it, you know, it's, it's not totally fair, but in fact, that's, that's common to all parents, I think, you know, putting aside the stereotype, every parent can identify with this to some extent, right? We're always working to help our kids get ahead. We want to do anything we can to get them where they want to go, And I don't think you should blame Salome in this situation. She is, first of all, look at her own devotion. She she is a disciple of Jesus too. I mean, here she is accompanying him in this journey as he moves along. Later, she's going to be one of just a handful of women who stay by Jesus' side throughout his ordeal on the cross when, I should add, all of the guys are gone, except John. And She accompanies, you may not know this, but Salome is actually reported as one of three women, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Jesus, and Salome are the three women who go to buy spices and show up at the grave on Sunday with the intent to continue the embalming process, and they discover the tomb empty. She's there. So look, you can't question her devotion or her discipleship, right? And here's the thing. You can't falter either for initiating this request because as we find out from Mark's gospel, she didn't. In Mark's gospel, we find out that the boys themselves were the ones who initiated this idea and took on this request, and they wanted to go to Jesus and ask for this honor, but they set their mother up to ask the question to hide their arrogance. I mean, boy, these guys, you know, they they were really thinking it through. Now, why did they get the idea to even do this? Where does the idea come from? Well, I would submit to you that it's because of what they just heard Jesus say not a long time before this on the question of rewards. Because if you remember from last week, he opens the conversation of kingdom rewards by telling them there were two types of rewards. Not one, but two, remember? And he goes on to teach of one of them. He goes on to teach about the the material rewards which I introduced us with today. But he also said there was another style of reward. And here's what he said in Matthew 19, 28. He said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, regeneration refers to the regenerating of the earth and the regenerating of our bodies, the resurrection. He says, when the Son of Man comes to sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, that was the future for those men. That is, their role in the future government will be a high one, of one of great esteem, ruling over tribes of Israel. But here's the broader point. The broader point is an opportunity to have honor and a position of authority in the kingdom government is another aspect of the reward system. Not only do you have a life of material blessing, you also have a life of meaningful work, meaningful contribution to the work of the kingdom, and with it, a degree of honor, depending on where you rack and stack, where you fall out in the org chart. (laughs) You know, However you want to see it, there's a position of honor for everyone. And he has told them this, and when apparently, when they heard about this reward, they saw an opportunity to climb the ladder in advance. They started to ask themselves, I would assume, how do we ensure that we get the best positions in this future government? And I guess they figured that if they went to Jesus before anyone else thought of this and asked for the opportunity to be privileged, that they might get it. I don't, you know, you can't fault them for trying, I guess. I mean, you do not have, because you do not ask, maybe. I don't know what they were thinking, but they threw the question out there. Now, when they do this, can you imagine the faces... Of the other 10 guys? I mean, maybe they're thinking, God, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Now, actually, you don't have to imagine very, well, I like to think about one guy in particular. There's one of those 10 that I'm thinking is particularly upset about this power grab. The rock, Cephas, right? The guy that's been given the keys to the kingdom. He's like, wait a minute, I'm in charge here. What are you doing? Look, you don't have to imagine because the text tells us, verse 24, the other disciples were indignant, now, indignation, defined in the dictionary, is anger at a perception of unfair treatment. When you perceive that you're being treated unfairly, you get indignant. So these guys are angry, but they're angry at the idea that two of their friends would, as I said earlier, throw them under the chariot, take, take opportunity at their expense, and look for a, you know, a way to push themselves ahead of them in the pecking order. And I, I, as I said, I imagine Peter probably had the most to be upset about. These guys, as a group, resented the power play. They resented what I think was a shameless attempt to steal honor for themselves. And I also suspect they're watching Jesus at about this point to see, what are you gonna do with this? Because really, depending on what Jesus says, you're gonna find out what the criteria is, right? Depending on how Jesus approaches their request, we will find out how it is that the Lord assigns value or honor in the kingdom. And so let's look at his response. It starts here, verse 22, by, with Jesus saying, you know, you don't know what you're asking here. And I think he means it in two ways. First, these men did not understand the criteria that the Father will use in assigning positions of honor in the kingdom, because if they had understood that criteria, they never would have asked this question, because the nature of the question itself and the heart behind it is actually disqualifying for the honor that they were seeking, They're actually working against their own good interests here by what they do. That's the first reason, he says, you don't know what you're asking. And the second reason is because if they did understand the criteria for how you receive honor, they probably wouldn't have wanted it. That is, they probably wouldn't have been so anxious to have those top positions because in verse 22, Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Which implies this is how you get there. What does he mean by that? Well, he's referring to his death on the cross. He's referring to the persecution that came with it. Because in the Bible, when God speaks of wrath, he often uses the picture of a cup or a bowl as a container of sorts to hold the the wrath of God, metaphorically speaking. And then the Bible will go on to say that when God's wrath is is released or uh, applied to somebody, it's poured out. That's the analogy that's often used. And we know that when Jesus was in the garden and he was about to go to his death, he prayed for the Father to take this cup away from him. He didn't want to take the wrath of God in in the sense that no human being, and Jesus was human, that no human being would want that. And so he asked them, do you want to do what I'm going to do? Because that is the methodology to receiving honor in the kingdom. And we need to understand what he means by that in more detail, but you notice, before we look at that, you notice what the guys say, right? They say, oh yeah, sure, (laughs) I mean, they probably regretted that answer At least in earthly terms But then look what jesus says. He says, okay, you will Now that was not a trick question first of all that is jesus was not asking them a question that They couldn't have answered because just a moment earlier He told them what the cup had Persecution trial conviction scourging cross all that he told them That's the cup And he asked them you want that cup? And they said yes. They said they would share. And he did say they would because they will. They both shared in the persecutions of Christ. That is not to say that they took the sins of the world on their shoulder. That's not the comparison, obviously. But just in the fact of how they were treated. James, you may know, was the first apostle to die. The first martyr among the apostles. And John, he was the longest living apostle, and from what we know, he never died of persecution at the end of his life. But that's just another way of saying he, he suffered differently, because James suffered by being the first to die, John suffered by enduring persecution the longest before he was released from it. But in both cases, they paid a price, that is, for following Jesus, one that was honorable, and one that I presume resulted in great honor in the kingdom, for that's the whole point of it. Jesus says, though, and here's the part that puts it together for us. Notice in verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, despite the fact that you will share this cup, nevertheless, you will I cannot give you these positions. That that's alone for the Father. Only the Father has the right and the power to place us in honorable positions in the kingdom. So this leads us to the key question. If Jesus could not assign them reward for suffering, for doing what he asked them to do, then why ask them to do it? Why give them this, this opportunity to share in his sufferings if he can't give them the reward that comes from it? And here's the answer. Because the criteria for receiving reward in the form of honor in the kingdom is not conditioned on whether you experience suffering. Jesus said, we will all know suffering, that if you follow him, you will have what he had. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you have a heart to accept it? How do you deal with it in your heart? And right now, these men were missing that heart. That is, in what they did trying to push their counterparts, their peers aside, and take advantage for themselves, they were displaying the opposite kind of heart of a heart that goes to death willingly for your friends, that lays his life down for someone else. That's the opposite. So someone who's willing to be sacrificing themselves for someone else is the opposite of someone who says, hey, maybe we can get ahead of our friends before they find out. You see the problem? So Jesus says, you will share in my sufferings because that's part of the deal. But he also says, I can't give you this award because it depends on how you approach those opportunities. In other words, the test isn't over yet. The father hasn't seen the result yet. So the criteria for assigning what I'm calling a reward of honor or positions in the government is based on whether you have a heart like Jesus had. So let me make the comparison. In the case of material reward, the inheritance, you obtain greater reward by giving Jesus greater service now with the things you have to give him. So the reward of material wealth comes from serving in sacrificial ways. But the reward of honor comes by being more like Jesus. So saying it even more simply, material reward is based on what you do for Jesus and honor in the kingdom is based on who you become in Jesus. What you do Versus who you are. And look, those things are connected, yes, but they're also somewhat independent. You can do a lot of things. You can be very busy in the church, and that's not a bad thing, but you can do it with the wrong heart. Or you can spend a lot of time sanctifying your heart but never putting it into practice. And there's a reward on both sides. It's not to say that that you have to do both to get anything. What I'm saying, though, is both work on their own scale for their own purpose, and obviously the best thing is to work in both worlds, to do things and to do them for the right reason and to have a heart that is a service heart. And if you want to see the best example of what that looks like, well, for obvious reasons, Jesus points to himself. Look at the next verse, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great, now there's the test. You want to become great in the kingdom? You want honor? You want position? Whoever wants to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first in the kingdom, in other words, among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So in explaining how to qualify for honor, he he starts first with a negative example, sort of proving the opposite first. He says, look at how the world thinks of honor and power. And you don't have to, look, I don't need to preach on this. You could have told me this before I came in the room, right? That the rulers of this world, and I'm talking everything from government rulers to those who are rich and powerful in business or sports or entertainment or banking or whatever, pick something, doesn't matter. Who gets to the top of those ladders? And what do they do once they get there? Isn't it all about taking advantage of your authority and your power so that you can serve yourself at the expense of others, even if you tell yourself you have better motives? In fact, isn't that the whole reason you seek it in the first place? I mean, isn't the main appeal of power the ability to do what you want for yourself? Again, even though you might give token admission to the fact that others need your help and you kind of you know, do a charity event once in a while, most people who have real power, real power, are in it for themselves. That's how they got there. And it's the way the Roman Caesars ran things in Jesus' day and virtually every leader that they could have pointed to. That's why Jesus said the great man of the Gentiles. He's talking about those kinds of guys. But here again, it's not limited to them. In fact, it's not limited to Gentiles. The Pharisees of that day were good examples of this same thing, lording over the Jewish people from their position of authority, using that power to enrich themselves at the expense of people. And that, again, is not unique. Look at the world we got today. How many people That you can think of, don't name them, please. How many people could you think of that are operating in a religious context, some some form of religious leadership, and are abusing that strictly for their own purposes, so that they can have shiny things and do live in big houses and do what they want at your expense, using godliness as a means of gain. Paul calls it. Look, it's the way the world sees honor. You know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. It's good to be the king, right? You know, rank has its privileges. All these ways in which we characterize the thought that when I get to the top, I can finally do what I want. That's the way the world thinks. Jesus said, not the way in the church and not the way in the kingdom. You got to turn that upside down if you want to have honor in the kingdom. Because he says, the way you find honor in the kingdom is to be at the bottom of the ladder now. And let me ask us a question, because I think this is worth considering, because you may not realize how easy it is to bring the world's thinking into the church and not even intend to do it. Ask yourself this, who among us in this church do you consider worthy of honor? Who would you hold up? And I'm not asking you to name people now, but if, you had to, if I gave you a, a form, a poll, and I said, I want you to nominate people for the award of most due honor, most worthy of honor in our church, and you have to think of real people that you know in this building, or you know, in this church, what person do you think deserves that title? I mean, who would you give it to? Who, who would deserve all of us to turn our heads and note their appearance when they walk through that door for the right reason, that is in honoring them? Who would deserve that? Who should receive admiring glances or words of praise? Or if you saw them in the lobby, who deserves to have a crowd around them, wanting to talk to them? Who would you model yourself after? Who do you admire the most? Now, if you answer, well, uh, the pastor or the elders, well, I would hope that's true, but I'm not saying it is. You would hope that that's where it goes, but I'm not saying it is. Some of us think of it in totally different terms. The wealthiest in this room gets a lot of attention, or the most attractive in this room gets your attention, or the smartest or the funniest, or we have some other way in which we gravitate to people because of what it does for us. And I'm not saying that's not, it's not always wrong. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. I'm saying it's not the system that God uses when he judges who deserves authority. What we should be saying is who in here and who in the church generally is the one who, when you see them, they lift you up. When you see them at work, they're the one making sure you have the best seat in the house. You get the best parking space. They're the one making sure that the church is suitable for you to show up or they're the one always trying to find a way to comfort you with a word or quiet you with a prayer or they're just serving you at a level where you can't ever see them doing anything other than that. And they do it, by the way, with no attempt, no effort to get any gain, any attention. They never make anything about it for themselves. They never say anything about it. They're the ones who clean up they show up early to open the church. They leave last after they've cleaned up. They're the ones who have done the toilet so that when you walk in there, it's always clean. They're the ones who, who just always are serving and you never notice them. You know, that's the problem. The problem is that's the person who at every turn should be told, thank God you're in our church and we certainly appreciate what you're doing. And more than that, I wish I was more like you. Because you know what? In the kingdom, you're gonna be working for them. I mean, the honor will be there. That's what the Bible says. The greatest among us is the one who acts the most like Jesus in that regard. Specifically, verse 27, he says, we honor the one who has made his or her goal serving others. They aren't doing it for the sake of receiving attention or reward. They just do it because they have a heart like Jesus. And the ultimate example, of course, is Jesus. He says, his willingness to drink that cup of wrath is our example. He says in verse 28, he didn't come to the earth to be served. Now let me tell you friends, he could have expected that. If there was ever anyone who rightly deserves to lord over us, isn't it the lord of lords? And the king of kings? And yet what did he do instead? He chose humility, he chose obedience over power and privilege. And you may remember that passage in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the Philippian letter. There's that classic passage in there that Paul uses to express this same concept. But Paul gives us something there that we need to remember on top of the mere fact that you should do what Jesus did. Let me remind you of what Paul says happens when you do that. In Philippians 2.3, he starts in the same place. He says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit like James and John. But rather, he says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now notice the descending language here. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the pattern there? And then he goes on. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven on earth and under earth, and, they will, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the first part of that you already got. We just covered it from what we've read in Matthew. This idea that you serve best by lowering yourself. But look at this example again. He started up here. He didn't just start somewhere high. He started at the literal top of the org chart. If there's an org chart for the universe, Jesus is at the top. He started as high as you can be, God himself, at the right hand of the Father, and he took a path that brought him down, not just some, not just mostly, he literally became the most despised human being on earth. I defy you to pick a bet. I mean, he was born into poverty, had no possessions. He ends up dying one of the most painful and ignominious deaths you could possibly imagine, buried in someone else's grave. I mean, you can't get any lower than he got. So he's your example from one end to the other. Highest to lowest. Somewhere, uh, you know, if we mimic that, the best we get is some portion of that, right? We go from some heights to some l- lowness, so, but we can't match what he did. He's our example. But what was the effect of it? And here's the point that Paul makes that we need to add. Paul says that because he was willing to do that, when he gets to the kingdom, where does he land? He's at the very top again. Name above all names, Lord of all, every single thing, every living being that's ever been created will acknowledge him for who he is as a result of that. It's your pattern, it is your example. That is, he became a slave of everyone so that he could rule Everyone one, and justifiably so. And we look at that example, and we come to the same conclusion. You know, the old bracelets. What would Jesus do? We got your answer. Be a slave. What would, that works anywhere, any situation. What would Jesus do? Be a slave. That is, in that context, serve someone else. And the result of that is that he's exalted. That's your formula. That's your model. The, the, humility is the means. Service is the means. A servant heart is the means to this other economy of reward in the kingdom. And I should add, by the way, humility is not merely the act of sacrificing for someone else, it's the heart that wants to see the other person raised up and works to make that possible. When you truly see yourself as a servant, then you actually are content when someone else receives honor. That's a great test, by the way. If you can actually celebrate somebody else's honor and not see it as a kind of a a loss for you, like it's a zero-sum game, The more they get, the less I have. If you can get over that and actually celebrate someone else's honor and be content with that, then you're on your way to honor in the kingdom, I would argue. In the words of John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he may increase, right? And why did the father choose this criteria? That is, if you look at the first example of material reward, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, I have material now, but I put it to work for Jesus, and then he pays me back material in the kingdom. I mean, you can kind of think of it like that, and it makes some sense, right? But on this one, maybe it doesn't make immediate sense to you. Why do I have to be just sort of everyone's slave now in order to be justified in receiving honor in the kingdom? What's the basis for that? Well, here's what the Bible says. When you serve that way, when you have a servant's heart that is humble, it advances the goal of the kingdom program right now. It glorifies the Lord as we serve others in his name. Because as you serve other people in humility, they are the ones gaining spiritual maturity as a result of your service. You edify others to the benefit of the kingdom. And when you serve, you are also sanctified. I'll tell you from personal experience, you will never grow more in your walk with Jesus than when you serve. There are seasons in our life when we need to be receiving things, teaching, counseling. You know, there's seasons to sit back and receive, yes. Yes and you should take those when you have them. But there are seasons when you serve out of the strength you received in your season of taking, and you become a source of strength for someone else. And we tend to move between them in our life. My point is this. Each of them has a purpose in your life, and if you skip one of them, you don't grow as much. And I'll tell you that from a teaching point of view, you never learn more than when you have to prep to teach someone else. It's just the way the process works. And when you serve others, it changes you. And as you exhibit the godliness that comes out of service, you reflect more glory on Christ. Listen to what he says in Second Timothy. He says, Second 2 Timothy 2.19. He says, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, now here's his analogy, and he's talking about you and me. He says, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, he says, but also, and I won't point to anyone, <laughs> vessels of wood and earthenware. Some to honor, some to dishonor. And therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and here's the point, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So in the process of serving, becoming humble, a servant to others, you work your own sanctification out. That is, through the way the Lord works in your heart through that, you become sanctified. Look, you want to learn patience? Clean a toilet. Or work with kids. That's a better one. Work with the kids. Uh, You want to learn humility? Clean a toilet. You want to learn how to to have a servant's heart? Show up early. Stay late. You know, these are the things that lead to things, which lead to changes in your heart. And in the time that you do that, as you do that, you become a vessel of honor. You become sanctified. You become useful to the master. Meanwhile, the ones you're doing it for receive good works that sanctify them. So, This whole system is designed to promote in the body of Christ an incentive, a desire to be a servant so that the true work of the church can be accomplished through us, that we become more Christ-like. And as Jesus says elsewhere, do your good works before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Right? That's the outworking of this. So it only makes sense that he holds out for us this opportunity to have honor in the kingdom and a service opportunity there in the form of the government for those who best exemplify the kind of heart that should have that opportunity. I mean, do you want to have people in the kingdom ruling over you if their heart is for themselves? I mean, we'll be without sin, and that issue will have been addressed by the time we get there. But he uses faithfulness now as a measuring stick for faithfulness there. So when you serve you open up an opportunity for this other side of the reward system to work when you serve in the right heart. And one last thought. If you don't, if you're more like James and John were in this situation, consider what you're also doing if you do that because not only are you hurting your own opportunity perhaps, but like those two brothers, you're also tearing down the work of God in other people's hearts. I mean, think about the effect. Remember how the disciples felt when they saw these two guys seeking for themselves above the rest of the body? They're indignant. And I think you need to understand that. If anybody here, for whatever reason, might have a bad moment, uh, you know, a, a bad day, and we, we start thinking about ourselves again. I've never seen this more than in, in a church. I mean, I've been in corporate environment. I've been in the military. Every world has its issues. Uh, but it's interesting in a church how devastating it is when somebody thinks this is all about them. And when they make the work of the church about them, you know, they become a big fish in a small pond, so to speak. And everything, you know, the, 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 the classic joke is the, the Bible study leader who has a room that they've used for 15 years, and somebody else dares to walk in their room and move their eraser, and they track that person down, and they tell them, you know, we, we don't have that here, thankfully, but what my point is, that's a really good example of someone who thinks it's all about them all of a sudden, and they make other people Indignant. And they make other people think, who do you think you are? They're not only undermining their own sanctification, they're missing the point of service, they're also inspiring discord and jealousy and division within the body. So it's not just neutral if you don't do this, it's actually detrimental. There's not only a reason to do it for you, there's a reason to do it for everyone else. That's how recognition should work. And I, you know, as your pastor, I will tell you, that's how it works in this church, at least as far as I have anything to say about it. We honor those who serve in humility. And frankly, if there was ever a day when someone tried to lord over someone else or elevate themselves at the expense of someone else, they're gonna hear about it in love. Because they need to. They need to know that's not helpful for them or for the church. The standard for honor, as you think about who you honor in this church, the standard should be that you honor those who have demonstrated the heart of Jesus to you. And that's the right thing to do. So let's sum up the the reward system. They both work in very similar ways. For material reward, you make sacrifices now for the hope of reward in the kingdom. But the thing you sacrifice is your time, talent, and treasure. And for honor in the government, you sacrifice positions of honor now. You become the servant and the slave of others now for knowledge that it will be rewarded for you, given to you in the kingdom. So it's, in both cases, very similar. Giving up what you would otherwise take for yourself now so that you can leave it to Jesus to give it to you when it really matters. Think about that this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we honor those who serve us, and I pray, Father, that you would direct our hearts to them as we encounter them, that they would see and hear from us as we have opportunity, just to encourage them, whoever they are. Many of them may be hard to find, Father, for they often serve in the shadows, but we thank them, and we ask, Father, that you would bless them. And, Father, we ask that you would uh, bring us along in our own walk with you so that we might be one day counted among them without any effort to puff ourselves up or to give ourselves this recognition, but, Father, only if it's due from others and only, Father, if it comes for the right reasons. And we pray, Father, for that heart, not just for what it might lead to in the kingdom, Father, but for what it does for the body now and in glorifying glorifying you before the world. Help us to see these things in our own life, understand where we fall short if we do. Help us to do better. And, Father, thank you for, once again, showing us your truth so that we know what it is that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.